Welcome to Talking Tourism, the podcast series created specifically for tourism operators. Talking Tourism, the expert series, is the ultimate resource for business owners who want to lift their skills to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a better tourism operator, listen on. This is Talking Tourism, and I'm today's host, David Reid. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council of Tasmania brings you conversations with the brightest minds in the tourism industry. The TICT is the peak body for tourism operators in this beautiful state of Tasmania. And each episode of Talking Tourism will deal with a specific tourism-related topic with tips and advice for improving your own business and getting ahead in the visitor economy. If you're listening to this from outside of Tasmania, welcome, because the content of these podcasts hopefully are relevant for tourism businesses wherever you're based. And today we're talking about best practice technology and protecting your business. And we've got with us Andrew Quill, owner of AQ Advisory, who specialises in the field of ICT. So, Andrew, good afternoon, and thank you for giving us your time. Good afternoon, David. Thank you very much for you've having me. You've just rushed in here from the airport. You're about to go to work. You've been to Myrna. You've been busy. You're flying it's, around. It's, it's, it's been a mad day, but that's, that's all right. That's how we like it. So, Well, I looked at your website. It says that you're pretty mad because you specialise in 24-7 stuff. Yes, yeah. So I spent the last 15 years in 24-7 environments and that does result in quite often uh, phone calls at two o'clock in the night and various sorts of things. So Uh, Your website also says that you specialise in fairly big businesses, ASX listed businesses. Tourism Tasmania in Tasmania is predominantly small business, so presumably the lessons we're going to learn today are are equally uh, subject to small as large business. And that, that's exactly right. The biggest issue we have from a technology point of view is the risks facing a small business are exactly the same of those facing a big business, but they don't have the budgets to deal with that. So it's a matter of trying to work out how they can still protect themselves, but for a fraction of the cost of those larger enterprises. Okay. So, okay. Can I please understand the sort of fraud that we're talking about? So could you give us some simple, uh, simple examples for our listeners? Yeah, certainly can. Um, I think... To some respects, we need to uh, understand what cybersecurity is, which essentially is where we're heading into. That is actually a a much bigger subject than than just a case of fraud or uh, vulnerabilities or environments that have been um, hacked, etc., So to work through that, uh, it's a matter of actually understanding that a lot of what these businesses face is instances they've faced for years previously, but just not at a technology level. So you mentioned fraud a lot of what it goes on is no different to the financial fraud that they would have faced uh, in previous years or decades. It's just now because of technology, it's a little bit more easily accessible for the uh, attackers to actually try and breach your organisation. Uh, but essentially, they're trying to do the same, do the things the same way. So to understand cybersecurity, it actually sits on across three uh, domains. Uh, one is the people, one is process, and the third one is actually technology. And the third one is actually arguably the smaller of the three. Uh, the people side of things is that last line of defence. It's our, uh, our end users that are sitting there that are potentially being defrauded through their uh, well-framed emails, et cetera, into believing something is legitimate. Uh, then you flow into the process aspects, which is where from a business point of view, you have procedures or policies, those sorts of things, and they are all definitions of a, of a process and they can apply to cybersecurity exactly the same. And then the technology component is where we try to put in engineering controls to actually make sure that we automate 
and um, save a lot of the load from the end users in that protection method. So you kind of need to understand that it fits across those three things and how we protect each of those three is slightly different. Um, but certainly people is by far the biggest risk that any business will face. Scammers. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's also the end users. Unfortunately, uh, no end user wants to do the wrong thing or plans to come to work to do so, but sometimes they're unaware. And so it's that lack of awareness in the sense that we've got multi-generational people using PCs, email, uh, point-of-sale systems, et cetera, more and more on a day-to-day basis, and they've potentially never had the exposure to those that the younger generations have or awareness of modern um, next-generation threats, uh, those sorts of things. So we have to try and bridge that generational gap and through that is a more of a user awareness piece and actually understanding and trying to educate end users as to what those potential <coughs> risks or, or, or dangers are to an organisation, how these attackers may use email or uh, web pop-ups. Can you or, give us some examples? I'm- yeah, so certainly from so what we would call uh, from an email phishing point of view is probably one of the most common ones that any user sees. It's where those masqueraded or, or faked Emails are actually uh, sent upon you as a great, you know, you've won a mobile phone or through a recent survey, you've won $500 or right through to you have a new um, package awaiting delivery from Australia Post, please click here and confirm some details. These are all... I've had one of those. (laughs) Most of us do. Um, Indeed. And and so all sorts of uh, big businesses get targeted from these. They get effectively using copycat artists to actually reframe what is a legitimate email into this falsified version. And then behind that URL that you click on is where they then redirect you to uh, the site that is going to either obtain a whole heap of personal information off you that you don't wouldn't want to give you wouldn't normally give away, or it's going to try and run some malicious code to try and um, break into your machine. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the that's the biggest one that end users face on a day to day basis. So that's everybody faces that. Correct. Yeah. yeah so, and yeah. it could be your grandmother. Yep. Uh, it could be uh, even the the point of sale operator who's dealing with an online order. Right. Um, I I deal with organisations from large uh, one, two, three small, uh, three employee type finance brokers right through to uh, two and a half thousand uh, seat organisations, and they all see that same trait. And depending on it doesn't it, it does it crosses all industries and all organisational size. And unfortunately, one of the questions I get asked most is why would my business in Tasmania, potentially in regional Tasmania, get targeted for a cyber attack? Hmm. And reality is that ninety or well, a large portion of the cyber attacks aren't targeted. They're generally thrown out there just as a method of trying to work out who they can catch, or what we call laterally move, so move from one organisation to another to obtain eventually the organisation that they're trying to get access to. So, Andrew, what you've been discussing happens obviously to all of us because I think I interrupted you to say, oh, that's happened to me. So the, the fraud bit is how the, um, the enemy, if that's what we're going to call them, uh, find their that you have satisfied one of their requirements, which is you've answered their email or clicked mm-hmm. on a website or whatever. That then allows them 
inside your area into your personal information, does it? Is, is that how this works? Uh, essentially. They start to steal things from you then? Yeah, it depends on a range of things and, and uh, the types of controls that you have in place as an organisation. Uh, but certainly when we're talking smaller organisations, they don't tend to have those advanced uh, what we call email hygiene type solutions in place, those uh, controls that are actually checking what you're clicking on, uh, assessing that link, those sorts of things. So in that instance, yes, depending on the nature behind the link, they're either there to steal information, uh, as in what we call your PII, so your personally identifiable information, and that can be anything from your name, address, phone number, date of birth, potentially bank details, those sorts of things. So they're either purely and simply trying to obtain that information, which has a value uh, on what we call the dark web, uh, or they're trying to actually uh, exploit a vulnerability on your machine through some execution of, of code effectively. So depending on how it's framed, when you click on that, if your machine, for example, doesn't have the latest patches, those sorts of things, there's potential that there's a vulnerability that they're able to exploit to then give them uh, access at various levels to your machine or your email account or things like that. So one of the the common ones we see uh, in cloud email platforms is that they will actually send you a link which is designed to actually uh, mimic you logging into that platform and then prompt you for your credentials. You then type in those credentials and as part of that they actually do what we call credential harvesting. They are then able to log into your email platform as you and impersonate you by sending other emails. And that's what I mean by that laterally moving from one organisation to another. Uh, there is things like multi-factor authentication, which is one of the biggest control methods for that. But if you don't have that enabled, then you're certainly at risk. I have no idea that last bit. What did you mention? Multi? What we call multi-factor authentication right. so, or two-factor authentication. Uh, most banks, for example, will utilise that here and today, that when you're trying to do a bank transaction, they'll send, send you an SMS oh, with yeah. a code. Okay, yep, yep, yep. That's a form of multi-factor. So it's I actually see, something yeah. you something so you know. It's not being all on the, the same piece of machinery. It's something else. In, there's a sort of third party being involved. Correct. So it can okay. be can be one right. of three factors. So one something you know, like a password, something you have. Um, a pop-up or a text message or whatever to your phone or something I am, so biometric fingerprints, those sorts of things. So when you use a combination of those two or potentially all three, you end up with multi-factor authentication. I'm with you. I'm with you. You mentioned the cloud. Yes. A a lot of idiots like me who are, you know, Neanderthals, we believe the cloud is extremely safe because obviously that's why it was invented because previously we didn't have a cloud, so cloud must be good. Is that true? It can be. Uh, And I say that on the basis that the reason why the cloud was invented was the fact of a lot of organisations do a lot of things repeatedly, as in uh, organisation A has their email platform, organisation B has an email platform. They have to go through expense and processes to set those up and maintain them. If a third party is able to take that and put it in the cloud, then we can actually cost share the expense to run so. And so as a result, yes, some of the reputable cloud providers are more secure uh, than you running it within your own organisation. But there is also some out there that are less, um, their processes are less mature and so therefore they potentially are at more at risk than uh, some of the more reputable brands. Saying that, when you have connectivity from anywhere in the world, as, as you do with a cloud host, then you have to try to manage how 
it knows that I'm logging in from Tasmania, Australia, and not logging in from Singapore or Russia or America Hmm. as an attacker. Because in in Tasmania or anywhere, we are all we're all part of the one world system mm-hmm. of, and we're all trying to gain bookings that are direct. Yes. So we're trying to get people to talk to us either on our website or or on our directly via our website through our email, or to our booking platform or our booking engine where they will book direct with us, whether it be a tour or a visit or some accommodation or whatever it might be. So in all of those different steps, um, there the, the must be, as people talk to us, there must be people who have uh, very bad intentions about why they're talking to us. Is this, is, so so it, are all of those different steps at, a, at, a, at risk? Short answer is yes. So, yeah. and, and it's interesting you use the word risk and this is actually something we need to probably explore a little bit further in the sense that most business owners are used to dealing with risk. Is it that someone's going to open in competition up the road or do I have an OH&S risk of somebody falling down the stairs mm-hmm. or, or, or et cetera? Cybersecurity is actually no different to that. You have these risks out there that are actually accessible and and, and understand how they sit alongside all your other business risks and um, then you can deal with them as per any other risk. So you'll have uh, effectively a vulnerability, a machine that doesn't have a software patch or something like that, somebody wanting to be able to execute or attack that vulnerability and as a result of that you have a threat. Depending on the likelihood of that threat, you start to understand how I can build a risk matrix yeah. out of this to assess the impact and eventually um, have a have a risk mm. uh, that sits alongside my OHNS or or other risks. Uh, as a result of that, you can quite easily understand what is the impact of that risk being exploited, has a dollar value, and also to mitigate that, what the dollar value is to to control mm. it, and. The big thing here, as I say, for most businesses, it's a matter of actually being able to commercially and viably actually mitigate these risks within your business. You've got, for example, the four big banks that are spending millions of dollars a year on cybersecurity, and yet if your business is only making $100,000 a year in, in profit, there's no way you can spend that much money. No. So you have to no. work out how how to, how, how to, how to do this. this. Yeah. And, and the easiest way, unfortunately, what I find in the industry is a lot of vendors and and so forth out there that are, oh, look, we've got a silver bullet or this is the fix or you need to do this. Um, And reality is it's actually a matter of actually sitting back and looking at your business and, okay, where in my processes could I be attacked and put controls around those? And so when you were saying about online bookings and those sorts of things, if you're using reputable online booking platforms, a lot of those platforms will actually manage the cybersecurity component of that website and those sorts of things. Uh, if you were doing your own booking page on your own website, then you would have to actually put additional controls yeah, in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a long-winded way to get to where we were going. <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, the, the, because the, the other question I have is um, the follow-up question is is about the way that we currently transact is, is usually all with a credit card. Yep. It, we either hold a credit card for later on use, so we hold your you make a reservation sometimes for dinner, sometimes for a three nights accommodation in New York, but you're usually either typing in or handing over your credit card information. 
And there must be an enormous amount of credit card fraud that goes on constantly. And I was even thinking today, uh, knowing that we were going to meet this afternoon, that there are many times when I just throw my credit card into a small um, saucer with another three people having had dinner and it just disappears and someone comes back and says, yes, we divided it by three and you'll see it tomorrow. Um, I, I know that's, uh, that's a very flippant way of, of introducing a subject, but but can you please tell us from a merchant and from a customer's point of view, what are the major stumbling blocks about making mistakes with credit cards? So from a consumer point of view, uh, one of it is exactly that, not losing possession of that card. Once I lose possession of it, I can't guarantee uh, all, all the credit card details, the numbers. I can't guarantee that it's not used in a way that I didn't intend it to be used. Yeah. Similarly, when I put the credit card details into a website, uh, if they if that website doesn't manage your credit card compliance to what we call the PCI DSS standard, so there's an actual international standard that anybody obtaining credit card details is supposed to follow. Oh, um, do we all know that? And well, most most vendors do, and most banks will actually send you uh, some form of you must comply to this. Uh, however, it's surprising how many organisations, when I actually go and talk to them and deal with them. Uh, struggle on the compliance because the big one is when you write down a credit card number from a phone payment, that piece of paper has to be dealt with in accordance to that to, to that um, standard. And what is that? Uh, well, essentially, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, for starters, you, in an ideal world, you wouldn't be writing the credit card details down. Uh, but if they are, they are to be kept secured, handled uh, minimally, so minimal amount of hands to, to do so, and then securely destroyed. Uh, right. effectively being shredded and so forth uh, at the end of that. And that's why there's a big push to going, okay, no, we don't take credit card payments over the phone. We want you to do it via our website. Yes. And then you make sure that you look for the, uh, I was about to say obvious items, but sometimes it's not obvious to all people, but things like are we, is the website a secured website? Now, all browsers will tell you whether or not it's secured or not secured, uh, and that's around whether or not it uses a digital certificate to encrypt that transaction as it goes across the internet. Tell me, sorry, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. <laughs> Neanderthal this side of the table. What is? What do I have to do to make sure that it's encrypted? So uh, the technical part behind this is that uh, with a transaction that is secured, is it will use a digital signature uh, and certificate to encrypt the data, so that if it is obtained between point A and point B, nobody can actually ascertain what the data is within that. And so when you log into your banking app or your banking website, you'll find that if you look in the in the website, in the address bar of the browser, it will come up usually with a green section that basically says secured in some form. Uh, or there might be a padlock that is locked. Yes. Those sorts of things are from a, excuse the terminology, but layman's terms, yes, the yeah. ideal way to actually identify whether or not my website is actually secure or not. The other one from an online transaction point of view, things like uh, PayPal, for example, yes. is actually a, a good way of, of actually having uh, consumer protection yeah, yeah, yeah. because they will actually protect you and it's actually them dealing with the merchant, not your credit card dealing with the merchant. I see, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the other one is looking for uh, a trusted um, credit card merchant as part of a, a like a logo type aspect. There's a, there's There's a number of them out there, but on usually on the website somewhere it'll actually say processed by and a third-party um, credit card merchant um, pr- process 
entity. Quite often you'll actually get redirected to their website, do the pay, do the transaction and then come back to the original vendor's website. And that's, again, just a method of uh, various businesses mitigating their risk and outsourcing that process. I went to a festival a few months ago and there was a mobile ATM sitting outside mm-hmm. on a trailer. In fact, there were three on a trailer, four. I don't know, there was a whole host of them it seemed. So I blindly go up there and put my card in, got my hundred dollars out, and went and spend it. So is is that is that a, a secure thing? Because it's not a bank. Um, I mean, it's I'm sure it's highly reputable. Correct. But and, and that must be going off into the cloud somewhere and finding out my details and saying, yes, David's got a hundred bucks. You can give it to him. So those mobile ATMs are not dissimilar to what you'll find in most shopping centres that are not a bank ATM. You can quite often find that there'll be ones there which is a third party and they take a fee yes, yes. for you to have the convenience of being able to withdraw those that those funds. Uh, a large, if not all of them, operate over the cellular network. So the same as our mobile phones do, same as our, we access the, the internet on our mobile phones, they operate exactly the same way. So they use that same method of connection to the internet. Yeah. Now, that is no uh, different or less secure than you accessing your banking from your home PC. You are still connecting to that same internet. It's just that it's done in a wireless form um, and it's part of their compliance as an operator basically means that from the moment it turns uh, out of the back of that ATM and the, and the part of the um, various standards they have to comply to, it has to be fully encrypted from that point to the merchant bank uh, that, pros- that processes the transaction. So they are actually just as secure. What you have to be more mindful of is the physical security of those, uh, that someone hasn't put a credit card reader Uh, or what we call a skimmer, onto those or those sorts of things. But that is the same for any ATM that you can potentially use. Yeah. Can I ask you about Wi-Fi? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is it uh, – when Wi-Fi is is, uh, quite universal around an area uh, and people learn your password, so my neighbour might be using my Wi-Fi for downloading all sorts of things that they're not supposed to or that they are, I don't know. Um, is there a lot of Wi-Fi stealth going on? Do, do people do people use other people's Wi-Fi a lot? Wi-Fi is a really interesting one, and particularly when you talk about public Wi-Fi, which if I can just head down that road to start yes. with, when you walk into McDonald's or any other public food, wi- yes. cafe, etc., they quite often um, have free Wi-Fi. And in the early days when cellular data wasn't as cheap to buy, it was almost a competitive advantage. They have free so. Wi-Fi. People, and people would travel miles to go to McDonald's to get, it, exactly, to get free exactly. Wi-Fi. Um, the downside to that is a lot of uh, providers of those don't have what I would call adequate security on those Wi-Fi devices. So when you connect your device to it and then connect to the internet, they get trace elements of all the activity that you are actually doing. Who's they? Uh, the, the, the provider could technically understand what websites that you're going to and so forth. They won't be able to, if they're secure websites, so they obviously won't be able to see the content, but they can see trace elements of where you do and don't go. Likewise, if you've got three or four or six people in that shop, depending on the security they put between those, you actually may be able to see the other devices. Really? So one hmm. of the entertaining things I do from time to time when I get bored sitting in a coffee shop is is actually connect to the Wi-Fi and just have a quick 
you know, using very basic um, assessment tools to understand what I can see on that network. Non-intrusive, non, you know, harmful or whatever, but purely and simply, hey, it's almost like standing in the pub going, who's out there? Uh, And it's surprising how often you can get responses back and the information and the devices you'll see. And on numerous occasions, I've actually seen the point of sale machine on the same Wi-Fi network or the same network as the public Wi-Fi. And have you made any money at it? No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when you start to see, okay, I can see one Mac um, on the network and you can look around the room and go, I know that's that Mac over there. Is that like working, yeah. Yeah, then potentially, yes, a, a motivated attacker could potentially access that way. And, and of course, nowadays, um, talking about the Mac, there are those tiny little Mac Pay things, aren't there? The, the, the yes. Very clever little units. So you can probably see that as well. Uh, yeah, you, most you, of like you well, can. most of the time they actually connect via Bluetooth to ah, the device. Okay. So uh, not so much, but yeah, they are actually. Um, speaking of ATMs and security and so forth, they are also quite a, a secure way of transacting. Uh, again, because of the compliance and mm. standards they have to ab- adopt by. Mm. As a Wi-Fi supplier, are you liable for things that go on in your premises that people using your Wi-Fi? Now, there's a really interesting thing we touch on. Um, the short answer is there hasn't – I'm not aware of any tried cases within a court of law that would make you liable. Uh, a lot of the legislation is actually written, written around due diligence and due care and whether or not you've done your due diligence to supply due care to your um, clientele or consumer, all those sorts of things. And the same applies to whether or not I uh, do or don't keep my clients personally identifiable information secure, uh, which is as of a couple of years ago, um, some new legislation in the Privacy Act around notifiable data breaches. And I actually have an obligation if I have a breach of that data to notify the government and and so forth as part of that. Um, All of that legislation comes back to basically two things, one, due diligence and and due care. So the concept behind that is because this evolves and merges um, into new threats and bits and pieces so rapidly, the laws themselves can't keep up. So they're written in such a way that allows it to be tested in a court of law and defined by judge, jury, et cetera, whether or not you have or haven't done your uh, adequate responsibility as an operator. Hmm. So the answer, short answer to that is possibly, but there's been no no uh, confirmed cases that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's, it's, there's also a certain amount of consumer aspect to this that, hang on, you've actually accepted to join this network. You're actually agreeing to the terms and conditions to actually utilise that. So this is where it sort of plays out as to both sides of that. Um, when when you first start to feel that something is going drastically wrong, um, you probably notice it because your email is looking extremely strange or something's happened to you. You've been compromised in some way. And, what and should you do? Generally speaking, just to, you know, email or pop-ups or something weird on your machine will be, for most businesses, their first um, identification. Uh from a, from a stats point of view, something I should probably point out is that in most cases, from when you actually notify or notice that and confirm that you've been breached, chances are on average it's been 200 days since they were successfully able to breach to you being You're able to... You're serious? Be- yeah. be- before so the, you notice, it's the average is 200. The industry... So a- some of them are 400, some of them are one. Correct. So the industry average <laughs> is 200 plus days. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, from my point of view, I've dealt with uh, three cases this year in Tasmania where organisations have had to have complete what we call bare metal restores. So their entire environment has been destroyed. They've had to go back to their previous backups from two or three nights ago, basically delete their environment and rebuild. Now, I won't and, ask you to, to breach any confidences, of course, are these small businesses? When I think about small business, 30, 40 employees, are they that sort of businesses or are they, you know, big firms? Uh, there was one small one, uh, as in definitely a small business, probably 12 to 15 staff yeah, roughly off okay. the top of my head. Really? Yeah. Uh, and probably the largest was more around the 100 staff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, that's scary. Mm. Yeah. And, and particularly when you think from a business operator's point of view, it's not just the cost of getting everything back up and running again. Uh, as in the cost of your IT provider coming in overnight, rebuilding your environment, cleaning it all, checking, making sure you're okay. But you still need to understand, how do they get in the first time? Yeah. How long have they actually been in? Have we restored the backups? What, what have they stolen? There's that part. But you know, have we actually restored backups that actually have got them actually being able to have access? So have we got them off the system? Um, but mm. also I've had potentially 10 or 50 or 100 staff not able to access the system and therefore not able to do their job for one day, two days, yes, and that has a, the worst thing. That has a lost productivity cost. Yeah. So, and, and that's especially why, if you're trading in anything and the system's correct. down, you've got no inventory, you've got no this, you've got no, you know, you can't do anything. You're yep. just stuck waiting till it all. Correct. Sorry, computers down. I have to wait. So you imagine from a coffee shop operator's point oh, of view, you no, know, I can't. It'd be frightening. They, they, <laughs> they theoretically can still make you coffee, but they can't charge you for it. Yeah. And so you either run it at a complete loss and still make everybody coffee for free or you have to turn around and say, sorry, due to unforeseen circumstance, it's closed. It's, it's cash only. Correct, or cash only. And then potentially your clients there or clientele then find another coffee shop up the road and start going to there and so you can have quite long-term effects. You're talking about people using backups. I asked you earlier whether the cloud is, is safe or not. But backups are an interesting idea and concept and everybody is, is very conscious about that. But we are now asked to pay for storage a lot, aren't we? Correct. So, so um, sh- I'm, I'm going to ask a ridiculous question, but how does one v- decipher storage quality? Yep, that is a, that is a challenging one. Um, I might backtrack a little bit and just explain the reason why we now see some of that need for storage cost and, and probably, if anything, once upon a time, uh, you know, 100 gigs seemed like a lot of data and now we don't. Um, if you think about it, we, we all take more photos than we ever probably did and those photos are now in even better quality cameras and all these sorts of things. So we, are, we as consumers are, are absorbing more storage on a day-to-day basis. Uh, as a result, you know, the, the, the USB hard drive that you used to buy for, you know, 90 or $100 and 100 gig is no longer big enough or it's not not flexible enough to allow you to do what you need. So hence the cloud storage is extremely attractive because my phone just syncs and I can get what I need on the go when I need it, all those sorts of things. The, the, the end of the day, someone is providing you uh, infrastructure and a service and so therefore there has to be a cost associated to it. Uh, it's one of the things I like to talk about and that is there's an element of trust that comes into all of this. If you think of it from a, a hiring an employee perspective, you wouldn't hire somebody new unless you did your due diligence to understand whether or not they were a reputable person to hire. And so when you're using cloud providers or a new software platform and so forth, there has to be a certain amount of due diligence that goes into saying, do I trust this mm. provider? 
the problem I tend to find is that quite often people just go, oh, well, it's free, and so I signed the terms and conditions and I, off I went. Um, and, yes, clicking a button to say I agree is just, in a court of law, just as um, strong as you actually putting a signature to page. And so potentially as if, it, if it's a free service, then it, they've got a cost associated to providing that service to you. They've got to be getting that money to fund that uh, mm. infrastructure somehow. And that's where we see a lot of people uh, then selling that data that's obtained. And, I, and mindful we're talking about cloud storage here and we're not talking about them selling your Word documents, um, but when we're talking about them utilising or gathering data from your locational services or where you where you do and don't go, they potentially sell that to other providers because that actually has a higher dollar value mm. than selling you the storage. So first of all, you've got to take that into account when you say, okay, do I pay for it or not? Um, then I always say you get what you pay for as far as cost goes. And so paying a little bit extra and then going to a reputable brand is actually quite a viable option. It sometimes also means that they've got higher security against those. Maybe they actually do an, um, allow you to use two-factor or multi-factor authentication to get to that data. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they may even have backups of that data. But this is another thing we need to take into account in the sense that just because it's in the cloud doesn't mean someone's backing it up. Um, and a lot of people go, oh, it's in the cloud, don't have to worry about it. Well, actually you do because most of the time, a lot of these cloud services, there is no backup copy. So if they have a failure, your data is lost. Now, there is a certain amount of they may have that shared across multiple locations um, to enable that to occur, you know, so they can lose a data centre in Melbourne and Sydney will stay up and you'll still operate and all those sorts of things. But if you end up with what we call data corruption or even a crypto locker, and I know you're going to ask me about that term in a second, but um, (laughs) a crypto locker on your device that encrypts all of your data on your device so you can't utilise it and then generally hold you to ransom and say, please pay the bill if you want this back again. They will also encrypt encrypt any data on cloud services they have access to. And if you don't have a backup of those that is separate, then you either have to pay the ransom or lose the data. And even if you do pay the ransom, which I don't recommend, there's no guarantees that they'll ever actually give you the key anyway. So... Um, most um, is fraud is fraud about manipulating your data to other people's advantage, or is most fraud about extortion? About saying I've stolen your data. If you want it back, it's going to cost you. Generally, most attackers are motivated by something, be that a financial benefit. Uh, you may have a reputational. Or, or political reason, so that's where it's more of a target attack. You run a business that uh, they don't agree with what you're doing or they want you on the front page of the paper for the wrong reasons, those sorts of things. So that's a targeted attack and that's more around damaging your reputation, um, so it's usually political motivation, uh, or they want to actually stop your production of a within a factory or something like that, so that has, a again, a financial loss to you. They don't gain money from it, but they actually know that you're going to suffer a financial loss. So that's the general three motivations. A large – I don't unfortunately have the stat right in front of me, but at least somewhere probably around the 75% mark are all focused on the financial aspects. They want to get money out of you one way or another. Right Now, that may be obtaining your data, which they can then sell 
for, for dollars. Uh, or, or stealing your customer lists and all yeah, those sorts of things because that's all yeah. information that they can then sell. That, yeah. that data has a value. Uh, or it might be that they want you to pay money for a ransom or it might be that they want to steal bank details or financial records or enough uh, PII, so that personally identifiable information, to steal your identity and act as you, potentially mm. get credit cards, those sorts of things mm. in your name. Goodness. It's all a bit scary, really. It is, and, and but at the same point in time, if you're uh, if you're aware and mindful, then you know these are all, as I said earlier, all things we faced historically. It's just that we're now dealing with them on a digital footprint rather than a mm. physical footprint. Um, if I can go as far as explaining an invoice with altered payment details on it, if you were to actually receive that via Australia Post versus via an email, would you actually pick that up? Our sound recorders had this very issue yesterday. <laughs> um, and that and that's why I sort of say it's not cybersecurity is not a technology or an IT issue as such. It is a business issue that starts from the board down because your processes should actually pick up that falsified document regardless of whether or not it comes in via email or physical hard post. You mentioned the word crypto locker. Can you please uh, try and explain that to me? So generally speaking, this will be one of those attacks that comes via email. Um, can also come via um, unsecured networks like public Wi-Fis, but generally it comes via an email. It's something that as part of you clicking on a link, et cetera, it will actually uh, execute some code on your machine, which results in it actually encrypting every piece of data on your device. So imagine all your family photos, all your Word documents, your resumes, etc. all of that gets encrypted in such a way that you actually have to provide a key to be able to decrypt that mm. and obtain that information back. Um, generally because of the way encryption works, the whole idea behind it is that it's supposed to be quite hard to break. So if we actually wanted to try and break it, it would take several years for you to then be able to decrypt that, that data. Um, generally they then go as far as saying, okay, we want you to pay a ransom for the key to be able to unlock that data and get it back. Nine out of ten times, you'll pay the ransom, you won't get the key. Or if they do, they may actually only give you part of it back uh, or they'll come back and hit you a second time and then say, okay, the ransom's now double what it was before. Um, and that's why backups are so important and um, making sure that they're what we call air gaps, so they're disconnected backups so that those automated um, processes that run to actually encrypt all this data can't actually access those backups and you can have, uh, restore from that in a, in a, in a mm. safe manner. Mm. Mm. Um, in Tasmania, we have a very, um, we have a very uh, a disparate amount of mobile coverage and, and, and internet coverage. And NBN goes to various places um, and some not at all. Does that, does the amount of connectivity have a direct um, relationship to the amount of fraud that is, that is of, um, possible? So short answer out of that is if you're not connected to the internet, then there's you a high probability any. you don't have a risk. <laughs> uh, so I'm saying that you, get, you, only get, you only get connected occasionally. Yeah, and, and so if I connect to the internet only once a, once a week and get 100 emails or if I connect all day every day and get that same 100 emails a week delivered to me, you know, throughout the day, 
does it change your risk? Hmm. No, it doesn't. You've still got the probability of of that hundred emails. Uh, you're you've potentially got some that are still um, falsified or malicious. So does it really change that that threat? In my opinion, I don't see it doing so. Uh, one of the things again that quite often gets mentioned to me around this whole oh, I'm in Tasmania, no one's going to target me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you're connected to the internet, it doesn't care where you are. Yeah, yeah. You could be in the middle of the CBD in Sydney or New York, or you could be technically in Antarctica. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. You are just connected to the internet, and therefore you're a device that's potentially attackable. And the the, the last question that I had for you was all about the type of industry that we're talking about that is susceptible to fraud. Mm-hmm. So in our tourism industry, it, it obviously there are museums and art galleries and, and, and basic attractions. We can describe tours and tour operators and we can describe accommodation. And so the, the, those are the three basic, you know, components of what our industry is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hospitality industry uh, sits alongside that. So we've got uh, tourism attractions and hospitality and accommodation. What is the, where is the biggest risk of fraud in all of these? Who should be the most vigilant? The purpose or method that they attack each will differ, differ slightly is the short answer of that. Um are they likely to, to target a restaurant from a direct financial please give me money type aspect? Probably not. Um, but a larger tour oper- tourism operator like a hotel is probably more around obtaining that uh, reservations database, the, the personally identifiable information about that. If you think about the amount of people that check in and out at a hotel um, – uh, it's, massive. Exactly. it's massive. Exactly. Um, yeah. And as a consumer, checking their privacy policy is a very interesting thing to do, actually yeah. do and actually see where you sit from that. But they would have hundreds of people checking in every night. Mm. Therefore, you know, over a week or two weeks or a year, there's a large amount of people that you can obtain from that. So there's a much bigger value out of that than getting them to pay one ransom. Um, smaller tourism operators like cafes and so forth, uh, unfortunately for them it's probably more around uh, – that loss of ability to trade is where the loss would be uh, because, again, you don't – when you're selling coffee, those sorts of things, you don't actually uh, have that much information gathered from your clients. And then when you start to talk about other tourism activity-based aspects, there is certain credit card information that you may be obtaining from people. There is some information around the people that are attending those venues that, that may be of value. Uh, but they may be trying to falsify – valid bookings to get you to refund them and in turn getting access to funds that way and that's probably the uh, the method of attack that they would probably take in that instance. So hence hence it varies slightly. Such rat bags. Yeah. All these people out there. Um, you, you have to, in order to uh, try to predict or, or protect organisations from these attacks, you almost have to have quite a, a negative mind and think, hang on, how would I actually do this if I, if I was to do so? I, I, I'm sure that you're the policeman, Andrew. You're working all this out. Before I finish, I want to ask you, Andrew, the top five simple tips to protect your business. Not a problem. So first of all, uh, touched on it earlier, multi-factor or two-factor authentication, that should be applied anywhere that is possible, particularly on cloud-based services, uh, and that minimises that. Uh, backups 
touched on it again earlier as well. They are the key part to recovering from an incident when you have one, and it's likely that you'll probably have one, and making sure that they're air-gapped so that they're offline and um, they can't be uh, affected by that attack. Uh, obviously, patching your software to making sure that you're patched against any known vulnerabilities is a big way of mitigating or, or minimising the risk that you face uh, or the ability for attackers to to um, gain hold on your environment. Then you've got a really interesting one, which is around restricting user rights. So this is more around probably larger operators than, than the ones or two operators, but literally minimising the access that employees have to your systems and to your data to only what they require to operate on a day or to do their job on a day-to-day basis. Reason being, if they are to be unsuccessfully clicking on a link and doing something they shouldn't uh, or, or we wish that they hadn't, uh, it minimises the impact to the business as to what that uh, attack is then able to gain access to as far as data. And lastly, uh, the email hygiene. Um, that is, if there was a dollar to be spent, it's probably in that protecting and, and making and, and scanning your emails as much as possible to ensure that they are as less likely to present vulnerabilities or, or, or malicious emails to your end users who are then your last line of defence. Andrew, I've got a follow-up question now because the user rights is interesting. Yes. Um, you've got a lot of um, international and, and, and major stats there that are, are garnered from presumably experiences all around the world. And the user rights is about limiting the number of people that are involved. How much fraud is internal as opposed to external? What we call the internal actor or the internal threat is actually a, a large one, uh, particularly when you have disgruntled employees. Yes, that's what I was worried about. Um, employees that uh, effectively are being terminated for one of a reason or made redundant or those sorts of things, they're the ones that are potentially disgruntled and and, 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 and the obvious um, threat. Yeah, yeah. But it's also there's the other one that's been sitting in the background quite happily and something's changed in the business they're now not happy about it and they think, oh, hang on, I can do this or I'll, you know, that old I'll show you type approach. Mm, so mm. there is an element of that. Um, it's not something particularly in Tasmania we see on a day-to-day basis but certainly across the industry as a whole. Uh, some of the big attacks have actually been through insider, um, insider yeah, yeah, effects. I, I would have thought so. Mm. And the yeah. other uh, follow-up question was uh, this um, patching of software. Um, how does a mug like me understand uh, all of the different bits that are open on my little PC? How do I understand to protect those properly and make sure that I've got the right patches? So most of the... Excuse the terminology, but the reputable software providers, your Microsofts, your Adobe's, you know, Apple's, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, will actually almost force you to auto update. You have to actually generally go in and actually disable the auto update. So they will continue to say, update, update, please reboot to update. And I know as an end user, it's like, oh, really, again? Um, but generally, they are releasing updates either every fortnight or every month for a reason. And that is that there's bugs in the software that need to be fixed to, to protect the end user. So a lot of those will take care of it. But it's sometimes it's actually those smaller apps that don't have dedicated development teams behind them, quite often the free apps, those sorts of things, that you actually probably should really question, do I need this installed on my machine and potentially uninstall uh, those away from what you need to protect them. But nowadays our phones replicate an awful lot of what's on our machines. Yes. So, So we download apps like there's no tomorrows on telephones 
and children have got thousands of them. Yes. So are, are they seriously unprotected? And they're always on the net. Well, they're always they're, on my net as soon as they come to my place. Yeah, and there is an element or risk associated to that, yes. Um, I have seen several uh, what should have been safe apps proven to not be, um, certain data gathering in going, occurring in the background, uh, unbeknownst to you that it actually generates uh, either locational data or, or device use data and sending that back as well as uh, potentially throwing in uh, vulnerabilities or pop-up ads and bits and pieces. Uh, I don't like to say one phone vendor is is more reputable, you know, more of an issue than the other, but unfortunately one particular um, stream of, of mobile operating system does lend itself to be more um, susceptible. More susceptible, and it's no different to the. If we look at the Mac and the Windows OS aspects, Windows has always been known for its, you know, oh, it's more susceptible. But reality is, there's a larger market share. So, where as an attacker, where do you actually put your focus? Do you put your focus on the device that you know forty percent of the environment's using, or do you put the focus onto the device of sixty percent and hoping I'm going to get a better win rate? So, that that's potentially part of it. Thanks very much. No worries. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening today and I hope you got a lot of value out of our conversation. It certainly opened my eyes to an awful lot of opportunities. I'll have to go back to my business and really rethink a whole range of things that I'm doing. I'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Andrew, Andrew Quill, for coming onto our show and chatting about best practice technology and tips for protecting our businesses. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your tourism colleagues to take a listen as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight with another conversation on Talking Tourism. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism. Talking Tourism.